0: Welcome to Coffeehouse Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Now recently I have been getting a lot of questions from people on human evolution, Neander- and Neanderthals and wondering, you know, I know some basic stuff, but it wasn't recently until a student came to me and asked even more questions that he had heard online that I realized I have to get some better answers. And one thing that I encourage you guys to do often is to go find people that have answers to your questions. So that's exactly what I've done. I've gone out and I've reached out to Dr. Fuzz Rana, a biochemist with reasons to believe to see if he could answer some of my questions, and he agreed to do so. So Fuzz, thank you for coming on the show and helping me figure out some of these difficult questions. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for having me. And uh, for those that don't know, so Fuzz Rana, you should know Reasons to Believe if you listen to the show. I think I've had all of the scholars from Reasons to Believe on my show at one point in time. But Fuzz is the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, books including Who Was Adam, one that we'll kind of be d- discussing today, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. Uh, So, Fuzz, if we can kind of jump in, um, what got you involved in chemistry, biochemistry? Why do you find this kind of stuff important and interesting?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I didn't really care that much about science when I was growing up. I wasn't one of those kids that was, you know, a a precocious scientist. Uh, But rather, as a young man, what captivated my interest was uh, rock music, girls, and sports. And I uh, was a good student in school in science and math. And my father urged me when I went to college to consider enrolling in a pre med program uh, to become a doctor. And I took my a biology 101 class. And uh, the first thing that we talked about in the class was the fact that uh, scientists aren't able to define what life is. And that to me was really very intriguing because I thought biologists knew what life was or what life is. And as I went through that course, I realized that studying the the molecular systems that make up life would be one way to gain insight into that very important question. And in the process discovered that there's this incredibly magnificent, marvelous world that is happening inside each of the cells in our body that is beautiful and fascinating beyond imagination. And so As a a student of biochemistry and then later as a biochemist, each day I got to transport myself to that micro world and investigate and explore and study. And to me, there was nothing more fun and enjoyable than than marveling at the world that's inside the cell.
0: Now, most people might say, well, you marveled at the world that's inside the cell and you're blown away by this because you're a Christian. And so, of course, you're going to see design and marvel and, and wonderful things when you look at biochemistry. Was this kind of your story? Did you grow up a Christian and therefore you just, you know, that's why science and, and Christianity makes sense to you?
1: Actually, I did not grow up as a Christian. I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, and my, my father was a Muslim. In fact, he was a, a nuclear physicist and also a devout Muslim. And um, my mom was from a Catholic background. She was a non-practicing Catholic when my parents married. So we grew up in a home that was permeated with science but a home that also harbored a a relatively negative view towards uh, Christianity and even towards Christians. And by the time I went to college, I was an agnostic. I wasn't sure if God existed or not and thoroughly embraced an evolutionary worldview when I was a, a graduate student where I just figured evolutionary mechanisms could explain everything in biology. And I was satisfied with that. And it really wasn't until I was in graduate school studying biochemistry in earnest, that I was confronted with the not only the complexity, but really the elegance and the sophistication and the marvel of, of the cell's chemistry. And, and that got me to ask questions about how do these systems come about, and that's the origin of life problem. And I found that those explanations that were offered at that time, and even offered now 30 years later, really can't account for how life comes from non-life. And and with those two observations in hand, it, it seemed to me that the only way to make sense then of l- the living systems uh, inside the cell was that these were the product of the, of, of a creator, of a mind. And so that um, uh, then caused me to think about other questions, like who is that creator and how do I relate to that creator?
0: That's really interesting uh, that you say that, because I, I just finished teaching through a section on evolution and, and bringing up some, some fact that like, some scientists disagree. They don't think that natural selection and, and random genetic mutations can account for the complexity of life that we see today. And, and some students said, well, that, they just think that because they're Christians and they have a bias against the science. But it seems like you have a very uh, uh, different approach in the sense that you were convinced of evolution, and it was actually the complexity of the cell that convinced you that that can account for complexity and that creation has to be true. It seems kind of backwards uh, than maybe what most people would think.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it, it probably is.
0: <laughs> In the sense that uh, most people, the, the the more you learn about science, then the more you realize evolution.
1: Yeah, well, for me, it is, it is the opposite. The more that I study uh, living systems, the more that I see evidence for a creator's signature, uh, uh, and in fact, you know, it's 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 really interesting because there are a number of people that work in 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 the question that deal with the question of origins who are approaching it from a materialistic, naturalistic worldview perspective. And these scientists, though they are deeply entrenched in in an evolutionary perspective, are very willing to admit in the scientific literature that when it comes, for example, to the key transitions in the history of life that we don't really know how they happened and that there seems to be limitations to the evolutionary framework. I mean, this is very much the case with the origin of life where we're looking at the very first cells emerging from a, a chemical environment on the early earth. Nobody knows how that would happen. Uh, the evolutionary mechanisms available don't seem sufficient to account for it. Uh, but then on top of that, even when it comes to like the origin of what are called eukaryotic cells, these are the the complex cells that have new, nu- that have Nuclei and internal membrane systems and organelles that you would be, people would be familiar with from a biology textbook that the origin of eukaryotic cells again doesn 't have a robust evolutionary explanation, and people working in this area will freely admit that we don 't know how this transition happened, you know or when it comes to the origin of complex multicellular animals, this is the origin of body plans again th- this event defies an evolutionary explanation and people that work in this area, uh, wonder how we can account for, for this, this transition or when it comes to what I would call the origin of, of human exceptionalism where modern humans appear on the scene and suddenly we see the emergence and the appearance of language and symbolism in a broader sense. Uh, there's no evolutionary explanation for how this could have transpired. Uh, and so to me, this is, this is again, uh, people that I would call hostile witnesses that are recognizing uh, that there really just isn't a way to account for this, these key transitions in the history of life. Now, they would still be deeply committed to an evolutionary explanation. They would not be friendly or make any kind of overtures to intelligent design or to a creation perspective. But nevertheless, uh, there are people in the scientific community that work on these questions of origins that, too, have uh, concerns about how this would work.
0: So if they're concerned with how this works and if they openly admit that there are some issues, why is it that they are so committed to the evolutionary framework and teach it in, in, in the popular level as if it is just a brute fact about reality?
1: Well, you know, from my perspective, it has to do more with ph- philosophical pre-commitments than anything else. Yeah. Uh, in, o- in other words, the philosophy that undergirds the scientific enterprise today is one called methodological naturalism. And it's the idea that when we look for explanations in the world around us, that we have to evoke natural process mechanisms, that the explanations have to be mechanistic in nature, that we can't evoke the work of a mind or or, or, or a design explanation. They have to be, again, an explanation driven by mechanism, which means if you take that approach, then, then the only option you have is that life must have evolved through some kind of evolutionary process. Yeah. And and so you're you by default or by definition, you have you've locked yourself into that class of explanations. And no, no matter if the if the evidence counts against it, you can't reject that approach because you agreed ahead of time that this is part of the construct of science. Now, you know, I'm not a, averse to methodological naturalism, and I think it does kind of uh, encourage us to look for mechanistic explanations. But when it comes to questions of origins, uh, and you've exhausted all natural process explanations, and things look like they are designed, then that should at least be an open invitation to explore that as a possible way to explain the origin and the history in the design of life. And yet, it's not a viable option, not because the evidence is lacking, but rather it's a philosophical
0: commitment. Absolutely. And I think that goes a lot along with uh, a recent interview I just did with J.P. Moreland on scientism and secularism, just this idea that science is the only path to knowledge, and therefore that's the way we figure stuff out. And it matches a lot with that methodological naturalism that you discussed there. And so I want to get into the origin questions uh, when it talks about, uh, when you talk about the human genome, Neanderthals, and human origins, and a lot of questions that were sent in by listeners. Uh, before we do, though, I- I've talked to your colleagues, Hugh Ross and Jeff Swearing, who both come at this from a, the perspective of astronomy. But from the perspective of biochemistry, what would you say is the most convincing proof or evidence for God?
1: Yeah, well... Yeah, you know, for me as a biochemist, it would be, uh, the, the elegant design of biochemical systems. And I mean, these systems are, you know, just, they're ingenious. They are elegant. They are sophisticated. Uh, it's very hard to put into words just how marvelous and magical these systems actually are. But one thing that helps, I think, to articulate the idea of design in these systems is, the, the old watchmaker argument advanced by William Paley who argued that when you look at a watch it has certain properties that reflect the work of a mind and, so, and it's because of those properties that we can conclude that a watch must come from a watchmaker and, and then Paley's point would be that when we look at biological systems they seem to have those same sets of properties and so by analogy that should suggest that there's a mind that undergirds these systems and to me what's provocative is that as a biochemist, that the hallmark features of biochemical systems, those hallmark characteristics are identical to those characteristics that we would recognize as the work of a human designer. And so we can make a a biochemical version of the watchmaker argument. But along those lines, that there are also these systems in the cell that in and of themselves are remarkably similar to man-made systems. So one of them would be uh, protein complexes that are called molecular motors these are literally uh, protein complexes that function as motors that are that are more efficient than the most elegant system that we could produce as human designers they are just incredibly impressive systems that are just eerie in their similarity to man-made designs and you know one example of that would be the machines inside the cell that manipulate dna Well, DNA is an information storage system, uh, uh, and the information is is stored in digital form, and that information is the set of instructions that are needed by the cell to make the machines like protein complexes that carry out all the operations in the cell. So it's like the the master set of instructions for the cell, and again, it's digital information. Well, when DNA is, is replicated or when the cell's machinery reads parts of the DNA molecule, those operations are literally functioning uh, like computer systems at their basic essence. In other words, the core of, uh, of manipulating DNA inside the cell by the machinery is, are essentially computer operations. And the similarity is so stark that, in fact, um, there are scientists that are looking to build what are called DNA computers that are literally made from DNA and these same machines inside the cell that manipulate DNA. And these computers that are being built that are again called DNA computers are more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer system that we could build. And so, to me, this is a, a just incredibly mind-blowing that that you that literally they're computer systems at the core of the cell's operations.
0: Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard much of that talked about before, and it just continues to blow my mind. It's just the the complexity of how that works. And so when it comes to an evolutionary perspective and an explanation of this, uh, what is the, the explanation of how we got the information of DNA from evolution?
1: Well, I mean, the ultimate explanation would be in an original life process that, that chemical evolution would have generated um, the the, the 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 first you know biopolymers, the information harboring molecules, and then some form of molecular Darwinism would kick in and evolve these molecules into into functional systems. Uh, that would be the 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 evolutionary explanation in in kind of broad brush terms. The problem with that is that the the evolutionary processes or the the chemical processes and then the evolutionary processes that we would need. To first of all generate those building block materials on the early Earth, or at this point unknown, uh, how they would assemble into the the information-rich polymers is unknown, and then how they would evolve through molecular Darwinism is unknown. Now, people have done these, these different steps in the laboratory, but they're done under these highly controlled, carefully orchestrated conditions where, in fact, the involvement of the researcher is central to the successful outcome of the experiment. And so if you then took the chemistry in the lab and you try to translate it to the conditions of the early Earth, which would be wildly uncontrolled, uh, that chemistry is going to be non-productive under, under the early Earth environment. And in fact, ironically, the, the work done to try to demonstrate the credibility or the viability of chemical evolution is, uh, in fact, is making a very interesting argument for intelligent design because the, the work, the, the, sorry, the successful outcome depends upon intelligent agency. And so, likewise, by analogy, we could argue that the successful outcome for then the origin of life must require the work of a mind that's orchestrating this process on the early Earth or is intervening in a direct way to bring about the, the creation of life. So the the explanation for the origin of DNA is, is sorely lacking from an evolutionary standpoint.
0: And what would you say to someone that says, okay, look, you see these complex uh, molecular machines, but that's because it's had millions or billions or whatever years of evolution. It started off very simple, and now it is more complex, and we just see the complexity today. But it was very simple beforehand.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, you know, in, in some respects— uh, Let's say if you're looking at a molecular machine, uh, you could construct what I would say are, you know, "quote unquote" plausible evolutionary pathways for how maybe these kind of machines could have emerged. But nobody really has produced what I would consider to be uh, the the evidential basis to support uh, these these plausible or so-called plausible evolutionary pathways. And in light of that, what I would do is is look to to systems. Uh, that um, where we can we can clearly make an assertion as to whether or not evolution can or can't do that. And so to me, this is why the origin of life questions is really very important, is because while we can debate perhaps without end whether or not evolutionary mechanisms can generate a complex molecular machine once life has started, if there's not a process or a pathway to create life to begin with, then then the evolution of these machines after life appears really becomes in a sense a secondary qu- a question or, or 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 an unimportant a relatively unimportant question so to me i like to focus on the origin of life uh, for that reason but uh but for example one of the, the the molecular machines that is ubiquitous in living systems it's found in every living system that is perhaps one of the most important protein complexes which is called the f1 f0 atp this is a a, <laughs> a rotary motor that's embedded in the in the, the membrane of bacteria or in the membranes of mitochondria and complex cells uh, would have, it have existed in what's called the last universal common ancestor. So in other words, the origin of this machine goes all the way back to, in effect, the origin of life itself. Wow! And, and so it's not just simply <laughs> that that there, in other words, there's not really time for this machine to evolve. Yeah. it it, it, whether there's a pathway for it to evolve or not is is immaterial there's not enough time and that machine has to work in combination with other machines in order for it to function in its role to harvest energy for the cell to use it can't operate solo it's got to be part of an ensemble of machines which in turn also go all the way back to the last universal common ancestor Uh, and so if that's the case then it, it makes that evolutionary scenario uh, much less plausible in my mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, we are 20 minutes in. I'm still in my intro questions. <laughs> I love it when our conversations just go this way and, uh, and they just, one thing follows to another. Um, I want to take a step back though. Uh, Ryan wrote in on Instagram and said, okay, how do you make, we've just been talking about some massively complex scientific facts. How do you make these facts relevant to a short sighted maybe unscientific culture in the sense of some people just i just don't care what I just focus on what makes me feel good. I don't care what the facts are what science is showing. I just want to do what makes me feel good how do you how do you reach that sort of person how do they how do these are, are how are these relevant to them
1: yeah, well, you know to me uh you know that's that's a great question, and I think this is part of the the reason why it reasons to believe we've adopted a strategy where we focus on new discoveries in science and what they mean uh, for the case for the Christian faith, yeah. because people are intrigued by new discoveries uh, and, and, and people are intrigued about what the latest discoveries are in science. And science is a great way to stimulate people's curiosity. And hopefully by stimulating people's curiosity, by it, by intriguing them with the latest advances in science that you can get them involved in the conversation that then can turn to, Questions that relate to what is our place as human beings in the cosmos? Who are we really as human beings? Um, and and those kind of questions, I think, lead them to the bigger questions that help them to move beyond just simply uh, living life on a day-to-day ba- basis, and and hopefully getting them to think about again the big questions and. The added benefit of this approach is that by showing them that science actually points to a creator, that you've now taken what's interested them, what's intrigued them and pushed them closer to again recognizing the 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 um, spiritually important things that they should be reflecting on.
0: Yeah, and well I think most people think about that question of of who am I? What is a human being? Like what what makes me different or what makes me me? And, and these questions definitely uh, address those those deeper issues that I think a lot of people think about. Uh, how are we different? And that's what we're going to get to shortly is, is how are we different than animals or Neanderthals? Or, you know, how do we get here? Now, another question that also Ryan wrote in, I think this is a good kind of preliminary intro question of, you know, do scientific facts evolve or change? And if so, how confident are we that we won't just be disproven in the future? You know, if, is it possible you think that that we do find a natural explanation for DNA or the complexity of cells?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that is, that is always a possibility, right? I mean, science is provisional. And, you know, things that we thought in the past were true scientifically turn out not to be valid as we, you know, move into the future. And, and, and so to me, I think that what gives me confidence is looking at the trend lines that, I, that you see in science. And for example, I came to the conviction that there had to be a creator uh, about 33 years ago when I was a graduate student. And so the last three decades, I've continually revisited the questions, is there a, a scientific explanation for the origin of life? Is there a genuine case for design when we look at biochemical systems? And over the last 30 years, the problems with the origin of life have become more extreme, and the, the case for design has become more compelling. And so based on that trend line over the last 30 years, I feel comfortable that uh, while there may be ideas that come and go, that ebb and flow in terms of their popularity, over time what I've seen is that uh, as new scientific advances uh, happen, as new scientific insights are developed, By and large, the case for uh, God's existence becomes stronger and stronger, and the case for the reliability in a broader sense of the Christian faith becomes stronger and stronger. Uh, uh, Although a particular piece of evidence that I may have thought 20 years ago counted in favor of Christianity no longer counts in favor of Christianity today. There's new emerging discoveries that actually take its place so that the overall trend line is, one growing, you know, of growing confidence in the scientific credibility of Christianity.
0: That is one of the exciting aspects of that we don't rest our belief in the existence of God or the truth of Christianity in one point, that if that falls apart scientifically, all of a sudden we're in big trouble, Uh, that there are so many different aspects of reality. Every aspect of reality is pointing to God. And so if, hey, if one thing that we think points to God, all of a sudden we find an explanation for, okay, that's fine. There's so much more that it's based off of.
1: Yes, it's, I mean our argument is not a single piece of evidence, but it's really a weight of evidence. And you know, and we're just talking about biochemistry here. And as you mentioned, you've had Hugh Ross and Jeff Zwerink on the show, and there's all kinds of other evidences coming from other disciplines uh, of science that also point to a creator. So it's it's a weight of evidence from virtually every scientific discipline that consistently points in in a single direction. Namely, that it looks as if there really is a creator that brought everything into existence.
0: Absolutely. So in our last few minutes of part one, I guess we're going to push uh, human origins and Neanderthals back to part two. Uh, But when it comes to part one, we've been talking a lot about DNA, uh, cells, and evolution. What are your thoughts? This actually comes from David. He wrote in one of the teachers. Uh, What are your thoughts on the fact that 98% similarity in DNA between apes and humans? Is that
1: true Yeah, yes, it is true. But it depends on actually how you're doing the the tabulation. So there I've seen values ranging from 98 to 99% genetic similarity all the way to um, as low as about 90% genetic similarity, depending again, on what you what you are using as genetic differences in your in your tabulation. Uh, But to me, the fact that there is genetic similarity isn't surprising. Now, I take a design front perspective, not an evolutionary perspective. So many people argue that those shared similarities reflect common descent. But another way to look at it is that those shared similarities could reflect common design. Uh, it, it's not uncommon for a designer to use the same designs over and over again, to to use archetypes, if you will, uh, to bring about uh, certain... Uh, to, to, to create with to design with and so why couldn't there be genetic archetypes uh, that a creator would use or the intelligent designer would use to create human beings and to create the great apes and to some degree you could argue that that this idea is already anticipated within scripture itself so for example in genesis 2 adam is made from the dust of the earth and god animates adam with the breath of life genesis 2 19 says the animals were made from the dust of the earth, uh, but God does not animate them with the divine breath. So, what separates uh, humans and other animals isn't our biology, isn't our physical makeup. We're made out of the th- same physical stuff. It's uh, we receive the divine breath or the image of God, and the animals have not. But if we're made out of the same stuff as other creatures, then you would expect that our, that there would be biological similarities, anatomical, physiological. Uh, genetic uh, and and even biochemical similarities, and in fact, these similarities are really very important for the discipline of biology to even exist. Uh, if every organism on the planet was was different, uh, then there's no way biology could exist as a discipline because what we learn for one creature would only apply to that creature. But if organisms had the same uh, archetypical designs, then what we learn when we study one organism, applies to all living systems, which suddenly makes the the biological realm intelligible. So to me, I I see these these shared features as reflecting shared design, and I see a a theological rationale for why God would do it that way, in that he is allowing his providence to be unleashed in nature. As we study nature, what we learn uh, unlocks the 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 gift of creation that God has given to us uh, so that we can uh, not only uh, promote human flourishing, but also so that we can be caretakers or stewards of the planet.
0: Wow, that is so cool. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe. Just getting done talking about... D- d- genome and the cell and complexity. And we're going to move in in part two to talking about human origins and Neanderthals. And so, Fuzz, thank you so much for taking this time and discussing these important issues with me. Uh, Glad to do it, Ryan. Looking forward to the next time. And thanks for downloading the show and listening. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. And if you're not so scientifically minded, maybe you'll send it to a friend or family member who is, so they can hear about the evidence for God from biochemistry. Find out more from Dr. Rana and Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. You can also follow the ministry on facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions. Send in your questions or comments through email at contact at com on Twitter or Instagram at RyanPauly3, or by text message at 714-989-6927. I hope you have a wonderful wonderful day, a blessed weekend. Love God, sip coffee, think deeply. This is Ryan Pauly with Coffee House Questions.
1: You leave. Won't hesitate to Your love will my way.